0: Welcome to the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. We are your hosts, Michael and Lauren Falk. We are physical therapists, athletic trainers, and strength and conditioning coaches at Kinetic Sports Medicine and Performance. We will be talking all things related to athletic performance for Milwaukee area athletes. Sports medicine, performance training, sports nutrition, recovery, and sports coaching. There's a lot of misinformation and myths surrounding athletic performance and injuries. This podcast is designed to bring current, factual, and evidence-based information to Milwaukee area athletes.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. Today I am joined by Dr. Kim Sukamel. Dr. Sukamel is an assistant professor of exercise science and the program director for the Master of Science in Sport Physiology, And performance coaching program at Carroll University. I first got to know Tim as a student at Carroll, being a subject in several research studies. He was leading on weightlifting and their derivatives, which we will get to dive into a bit today. Tim, welcome to the show and thank you for coming on today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: We always like to get to know you a little bit and get a little bit of background so people can know you a little bit better. Um, So what was your educational background and what first interested you in researching sports performance and what I consider one of your niches, weightlifting derivatives.
2: Yeah, so I did my undergraduate work at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh and then continued on to get my master's at the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse. And at Lacrosse was where I kind of got into weightlifting a little bit more. Uh, the, my thesis project was focused on whether or not a, a catch needed to be performed or if there shouldn't necessarily say needed to be performed, but if there wasn't a, a different effect, if we removed the catch phase on, you know, power output, force, velocity, et cetera. Um, but from that, that kind of carried me into wanting to do my own research in the future and also teach. So I went and pursued my PhD at East Tennessee State University under Dr. Mike Stone And there, you know, all of our research ideas kind of expanded. And um, we've been able to build on the research that we've had up to this point.
1: Awesome. When you first sort of got into this, um, was there much research in this realm of weightlifting derivatives or did you and Dr. Stone or any of your other colleagues kind of first get the idea to seek it out?
2: Most of the research that was done prior to that point was pretty much all on your traditional weightlifting movements. You know, What did snatch technique look like? What did clean and jerk technique look like? Um, in 2011, so I was a student at UW lacrosse at the time. Uh, Dr. Paul Comfort, who's a colleague of mine in the UK had put out a couple projects that were looking at the mid thigh pole compared to the mid thigh power clean, hang clean, uh, et cetera. And they were all performed at the same load. So those, in my opinion, from what I remember, were some of the first projects done on uh, pulling derivatives. And from there, we kind of expanded on that and used some different variations. He used the mid-thigh pull, which we now classify as kind of a force-dominant weightlifting movement, given the fact that you can load it really heavy. But we looked at two velocity-dominant movements, which are the jump shrug and the high pull. So we compared the jump shrug, the high pull with the hang power clean, but we also did it across a spectrum of loads. So the research that we did was kind of unique in that regard because we were using a a different spectrum of loads rather than just a single load.
1: It's kind of interesting that this is a relatively, in my mind, like new area of research. Um, And a lot of people, older coaches and just coaches who aren't really into the, the research don't know a lot about this. So when I bring it up, and all these alternatives to doing a power clean, which in and of itself is a derivative, um, but we'll get into that shortly, is they don't really know how to use a lot of these principles with weightlifting to apply to their athletes. So before we get too in-depth with all of this, um, I'll have you define for all of our listeners what exactly are weightlifting derivatives.
2: Sure. Uh, A weightlifting derivative uh, in and of itself is a uh, a variation of a Traditional weightlifting movement in the sport of weightlifting, there's the snatch and the clean and jerk. But we also, with the way that we train athletes, is we usually use variations of those or derivatives. So if we're doing a catching-based derivative, which is going to be a uh, any movement that performs a catch, whether it's a clean variation or snatch variation, that is either going to remove uh, lifting the bar up off the floor or catching it in a slightly different position. So we may be able to perform it from the floor, from the knee, from the mid thigh, uh, you know, a hang variation with a counter movement. Uh, and all of those could be performed with a full catch. However, you also may catch it in what we call the power position, which is going to be uh, at parallel or above. Uh, but so those are catching derivatives. A pulling derivative is going to be a an weightlifting variation that removes the catch phase altogether and focuses primarily on the second pull or the triple extension movement. And those variations again can be performed from the floor, the knee, the hang, the mid thigh. Uh, But there's several advantages to those that I'm sure we'll get into, but primarily because you don't have to catch the bar, you you may be able to use a lot more weight than you would traditionally use because you're limited to your one RM with a catching variation. Therefore, if you're going to use a pulling variation, you could use loads in excess of a 1RM catching variation. Um, On the lower end of the spectrum, uh, we're kind of limited with catching variations in terms of maximal effort, uh, because if you get lower than about 50%, you're probably not going to really get someone's max effort. Cause if you do, you're probably performing the technique slightly wrong because um, the bar may fly up higher during a clean and come crashing down on you versus pulling variations like the jump shrug and the hang high pull they're they maximize power at light loads and they're more ballistic in nature than your traditional catching variations.
1: Interesting. So there's the, the catching derivatives and pulling derivatives. From what I remember, a lot of working with you, you guys tend to focus a little bit more on the the pulling. Is that correct?
2: Most of our research is on pulling, uh, but also comparing it to catching variations. the The fact of the matter is, is there's this big gray area in strength and conditioning that you can you can perform either a catching variation or a pulling variation if they're performed, you know, about the same load. However. We should always focus on the exercise stimulus that we're giving someone that should be specific to each goal that we're trying to achieve. So Mm -hmm. if we're focused on gaining strength, then we really need to emphasize high force movements. And if you're limited with a a catching variation due to your 1RM, that's why we say you can overload those a little bit more with pulling variations. And then the same kind of on the velocity side as well.
1: Hearing you talking about the different force-dominant movements versus velocity-dominant movements. Um, How do you apply this research that you do into designing your training programs that you apply to your athletes um, during specific times in the year, during the sport that they play? I know you mentioned that it's sort of goal-directed, but what are some specific weightlifting-derivative movements that you would use in each phase or whatever goal you might have for that athlete?
2: It's a big question, but I'll do my best to kind of keep it, as focused as I can. Um, So we, everything is specific on the individual phase. Example, if we're talking about a strength endurance slash hypertrophy phase, our two goals are going to be increasing an individual's work capacity, but also uh, changes in muscle architecture, generally increases in muscle size uh, but our, kind of we're increasing the size of our engine, if you will. Uh, in the strength phase, we have two different goals. We want to increase the amount of force production as kind of a peak, so we're trying to raise the ceiling a little bit, uh, but we're also trying to increase our rate of force development or how quickly we develop force, and we do that with a combination of heavier loads but also lighter, more ballistic loads as well. Then when we get into something more like a strength power phase, we have two goals as well, is we're trying to um, get further increases in rate of force development, but then we're trying to increase our overall power output. Now, rate of force development is going to be foundational to power output due to the rate or the quickness that we're able to develop force, and that's gonna translate to our um, velocity and into power output eventually, but, Every single one of these phases, and there's other phases as well, don't get me wrong, but every one of these phases, when we program weightlifting derivatives, we try to make the exercises specific to enhancing those goals. So if we focus on something like a strength phase, I mentioned previously that we want to use heavier loads to really emphasize high force production since we're trying to raise the ceiling. The thing to remember about Uh, weightlifting derivatives and pulling derivatives specifically is that the bar may not be displaced as far as or as high as um, a catching movement because the bar doesn't have to be elevated that high. So something like a counter movement shrug, a mid-thigh pull, a pull from the knee or a pull from the floor, all of these may not displace the bar as much and we don't have to catch them. And as a result, we may be able to use loads in excess of a 1RM catch. Example would be research is out there where we've used a um, a hang pull, a pull from the knee, a counter movement shrug, a mid thigh pull, all the way up to 140% of an individual's 1RM catching variation. And something like a pull from the floor may actually uh, be able to use up to to about 120% of their 1RM. Now, the advantage here is that because the bar is not displaced as much and we can load them heavier, we can really emphasize high force production and really raise the ceiling of force production. So, we're enhancing our strength characteristics um, beyond just force production. We're also talking about postural strength, positional strength, um, but also coordinated movements that are very similar. Now, keep in mind that if you want to incorporate catching variations here, you can, because you're using a moderate to moderately heavy load that you can also use to benefit rate of force development characteristics. So in addition to these heavier movements, you may be able to program lighter movements, hang power, clean, hang power, snatch, that type of thing, to emphasize kind of the high force rate of force development that we're trying to get. Now, as we transition to something like a strength power phase, we wanna emphasize movements that have a combination of high force and high velocity. And the reason why is the entire force velocity curve is based on this idea that we have, we need to work both ends of the curve to benefit power. In other words, we want to enhance our force characteristics, enhance our velocity characteristics, since force times velocity is power, and that's our goal here. Um, the way that we use weightlifting derivatives in something that's velocity based is we wanna incorporate things that one, have stretch shortening cycle movements, cause those are gonna be faster inherently. So something like a counter movement shrug, we can use you know just over 100%, 110%, something like that to emphasize high force. We may then pair that with a hang high pull that's all the way as low as 30 to 40% of 1RM to really emphasize the high velocity portion of that. Um, Now, going back to something like a strength endurance phase, when we're talking about work capacity, we have programmed weightlifting derivatives such as a pull from the floor. And in a recent study, compared a pull from the floor and power cleans from the floor doing three sets of 10. However, What I will caution everyone listening to this is if you're going to do that, you need to focus on what the technique is looking like. Uh, And the way that we focused on that to make sure that technique didn't kind of go to hell was we incorporated cluster sets. So we were doing sets of five, 30 to 40 second rest, and then another set of five. So that's 10. And that was one set. Uh, And we'd still do three sets of that. Now, an advantage here is, if we're talking about work capacity, it's how much work are you performing over this given period of time, but we're also increasing our ability to perform more work. So if we're doing a pull from the floor, we can use the exact same load as a power clean from the floor. However, again, because we don't have to catch it and it's less fatiguing, we may be able to uh, raise the bar a little bit in terms of the weight, that we're using. And in our study, what we did is we had a pull from the floor with an additional 20% during a strength endurance phase. Don't get me wrong. It's incredibly fatiguing, but at the same time, um, because it's less technical, don't have to perform the catch. You can use more load increasing work capacity. It's the same number of sets and reps. So we have advantages here. My take-home message of this little blurb is our pulling variations are our foundation. And then based on the phases and what we're trying to develop, then we can incorporate more catching variations. But generally speaking, um, we usually don't, this is my personal opinion, we, we usually don't incorporate catching variations until we get down to that four to three rep range, um, just for technique purposes and loading purposes.
1: Very understandable. It's a lot to digest there. There could be a million different ways I could go about questioning that. Um, But one that I have is a lot of this is applying weightlifting derivatives and movements to athletes that are not weightlifters. And it's trying to get them to either enhance their force, their velocity, or a combination of that throughout. Um, When you're talking about pulling in weightlifting, there's depending on someone's training, they might do like a low pull versus a high pull, what do you usually or how do you usually coach the pull with any of these athletes when you're sort of teaching the movement? Do you just have them pull a little bit or do you have them try to drive the bar as high as they can and why?
2: A couple things with that is when we get back from a long break, whether it's summer or whether it's winter break, we usually start with foundational movements again and that usually is a, a pull from the floor or even Um, working our way down to the floor but we usually take people through you know knees back knees forward jump and shrug and that's that's essentially what a technique is for pull from the floor is we want to make sure that their movement mechanics are where they need to be now uh, to answer your question about how high um, generally speaking um, I usually try to get everyone to maximize bar height regardless of what exercise they are performing the key, however, though, is to make sure that the legs are doing the work, not the arms. Um, if you start doing more weightlifting variations and you are pulling with your arms, the arms have to be secondary to the legs. You know, something like a high pull where we are actually you know, actively pulling with our arms, it has to be the result or the end result of what our legs did. The legs should be elevating the bar And the only reason our arms bend in general is because of the momentum of the bar moving upward. Uh, And we can't really keep our arms straight at that point. Um, However, when we get to uh, one of the cues I usually use is long arms. Um, So if we are doing pulls off the floor, if we're doing mid thigh pulls, counter movement shrugs, what have you, I always tell my athletes long arms. Um, They want to we want to maintain long arms through a the transition from the knee to the mid thigh position. Um, you know, the key, I mean, cause if they don't, I mean, if they start to bend early, the bar is not going to hit in the right spot and they're not mm-hmm. going to have the same whip of the bar as they would with the pull. Um, the way I think about it is the arms are ropes. And if you think about pulling something, you'd rather have a taut rope or tight rope, rather than something that's going to be, um, you know, lax.
1: Mm -hmm. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Cause a lot of it, um, getting into the kind of coaching aspect rather than just research is how much force is the athlete actually putting into the ground, not necessarily just how much weight they have on the bar or how high the bar necessarily goes. And I think that type of mindset versus just weight on a bar makes a big difference in terms of the, ability to achieve the goals that they're getting and the intent behind the
2: exercise. So, I want getting... to touch on that just for a second since yeah. you mentioned it is anytime you're doing a pulling variation, the athlete or whoever you're whoever you're using these variations with has to put in max intent with the movement. A common problem that you may see from time to time is athletes who have done catching variations before and then you take them to a pulling variation they may not give max effort because they, they view it as a partial movement that's not doing as much. In reality, um, it's probably doing as much, if not more, based on, based on what we've seen in our research and everything. But in order to get the best benefits, and this is really with any movement, is you have to put forth max effort every single time. So it's not just going through the motions and, you know, shrugging the bar at the top. No, it's maximizing your effort, pushing as hard as into the ground as you can.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think that's an absolute must in any plyometric or power-based exercise because loads are relatively usually lighter, depending on what side of the force velocity curve you get to. If you don't have that intent, you might as well just do something else. I always find Mm -hmm. so kind of getting into like the more coaching aspect, um, I've always heard or kind of asked the question to myself of why do a weightlifting movement over maybe just like a weighted jump? Because there's a lot of technique involved and usually it takes a little bit more time to teach and get the athlete to actually put the intent behind. Um, so what are some sort of thoughts that you have on that or strategies you've used with your athletes or reasons behind why you choose weightlifting derivatives maybe over something else like a weighted counter movement jump.
2: So you also have to consider with with that question, you also have to consider what other aspects are you getting out of it? Because if you think about a, a weighted jump, so let's just say a jump squat, for example, barbells up on the, on the shoulders. So it's certainly specific to a counter movement jump, but I would also argue that something like a jump shrug or any weightlifting movement that has a transition phase If you compare, um, I realize not everyone can do this, but if you compare what they look like on a force plate, they all look the same. Because um, jump squats, uh, counter movement jumps, they all have uh, two different phases. You know, they have your eccentric phase, they have your transition and your concentric phase. So you can train a jump, if, if that's what we're referring to, with any of these variations. But I would also argue, that with weightlifting movements, you're getting additional benefits from a strength standpoint that you may not necessarily get from a loaded jump. If you're looking to maximize power output with something like a jump squat, research seems to show that anywhere between body weight and 30% of your one RM back squat is where you're gonna maximize power output. Now that is similar to something like a, um, a jump shrug, given that it's a ballistic jump variation, however, something like a uh, pull from the floor may maximize power output 90 to 110% of your power clean. So it's really a matter of, again, what are you working on at the time? You know, you get additional benefits from, you know, from doing plyometric, from doing loaded jumps, but you also get a larger spectrum of benefits doing weightlifting movements. Think about the coordination it takes to lift a bar up off the floor rather than just doing a counter movement during something like a, um, a jump squat. Now, we've actually done a project on, um, on comparing loaded jumps uh, of different kinds. So we did a, a hex bar jump or a trap bar compared with a jump squat and a jump shrug, which is a weightlifting pulling derivative. And what we ended up finding with that is both the hex bar and the jump shrug produce higher power outputs across the board compared to a jump squat. So that has to do with load placement, that has to do with the movement um, itself. But what was unique is that the highest power outputs from the jump shrug were at lighter loads. so anywhere between 20 and 40% of an individual's body weight compared to a hex bar, which was slightly heavier, 40 upwards to 80% depending on the person. So. It's not a question of which one or, you know, a kind of a black and white answer of, you know, this one or that one. It is what phase are you in because bar more advanced, a strength speed exercise, which is your moving heavier loads for power output um, or maximizing power output versus something like a jump shrug, maybe more of a speed strength exercise, which is focused on lighter loads for power output. Interesting. I, I,
1: I like that sort of perspective of not just, well, this one's easier to teach or one or the other, but it's looking at the whole exercise and looking at how many boxes sort of, can you check off about what are all of the benefits of the particular exercise? So I can see how you can make an argument for using weightlifting. If you can teach it and teach it well, then you have a larger spectrum to be able to choose from instead of always having like these sort of more narrow, things to pick from Um, on that sort of same regard with the coaching is we're talking about power output on a lot of these, the sort of concentric part of it. And then another sort of complaint or concern I've had with these is if you're doing the polls and eliminating a catch for these derivatives, you're not getting the eccentric absorption aspect. And then what would your rebuttal be to that?
2: I'd say that uh, you're missing half of the movement then. Because the fact of the matter is, is that if you pull a bar, the bar just doesn't disappear afterwards. The bar has to come back down. Um, So as long as individuals don't let go of the bar after a pull, uh, and they bring it down in a, you know, in a safe manner to the hip crease or whatever, you can get eccentric benefits. Um, And again, you know, I'll talk about this in a second, but We've completed three different research projects on this, and um, what we ended up finding with the, comparing the jump shrug, the high pull, and the hang power clean is that the jump shrug and the high pull actually performed more work during the load acceptance phase, you know, following the pull, um, compared to the catch phase of a hang power clean, and this was across several different loads. Uh, Paul Comfort so, showed something similar where doing a pull from the knee was um, performed greater work compared to a hang power clean, but showed no difference between a hang clean, which is a full catch. We did uh, one other project with Christoph Kip, which was the um, hang power clean and the jump shrug, but we were looking at it at the joint level. Every single one of them um, at, I believe it was, 30, 50, and 70% of 1RM showed greater work being performed at the hip, knee, and ankle during the jump shrug compared to a hang power clean. Something that's important to note though, is that these all exist on a spectrum. So the fact of the matter is, is if you don't have a large displacement of the weight between when you, um, so if you're using a heavier load, for example, you may have to develop more of a compliance strategy when the bar comes down. So it's it's still giving you you know, a moderate to high force production, but you're expanding the eccentric impulse out a little bit longer. Ooh. So what I mean by that is you're not just stopping it on a dime. You are taking your time to slow it down. So uh, I guess a way to think about this is that When you do an unloaded jump, you jump higher, but when you do a weighted jump, you don't jump as high. There's research out there to show that the forces upon landing during a unloaded jump are higher than something like a loaded jump. And the reason why is the acceleration due to gravity. So if you jump high, you have more time to accelerate and move downwards and you're actually gonna land stiffer because you don't have any load on you. When you land stiff, the forces are gonna be higher. When you land more compliant with a loaded jump, the, load, the forces aren't gonna be as high because they kind of dissipate over a longer period of time. I shouldn't say dissipate, but they're spread out over a longer period of time. Um, now, getting back to the, the weightlifting movements is they all exist on a spectrum. So what we saw is that a hang power clean produced moderate forces over a moderate duration during the catch phase with a jump shrug, we saw high forces over a short duration. And with a high pull, we saw low forces over long duration. So what that means is that depending on the phase you're in, you could get unique eccentric benefits, regardless of if it's a catching variation or a pulling variation. One other point to make is that the more experience someone gets with a catching variation, The smaller the displacement is from peak bar height to when you rack the bar during a during a clean or even during a snatch, because you're going to catch it at peak height. And the displacement between, you know, how much it falls or crashes on you is going to be smaller and smaller, the more experienced you are. So you're going to rack it at the height that it needs to be racked at. Um, and talking with a couple weightlifting coaches, that actually decreases. The more experienced you are, it decreases the amount of eccentric, you know, force absorption that you're actually experiencing.
1: Interesting. A lot of these aspects are not things that I've tend to think think about too much, but listening to it and sort of re- reflecting back, it does make a lot of sense that you're going to get a little bit more eccentric. Absorption because the bar is displaced more in a given weight that you're catching it at mid thigh or hip crease versus up at your front rack or a snatch So I like that that seems to make a lot of sense so It's kind of sort of changing topics slightly from a performance and Strength and conditioning standpoint is i'm a physical therapist. I work with a lot of athletes And some of the research that I've tended to do is in ACL rehab, which, as we all know, is a very long, grueling rehab. It's usually nine plus months. And a lot of the sort of standards on returning to sport are meeting certain strength levels, side to side, jump tasks, things like that. But one overlooked, and it's been relatively new in my mind of what I've seen, is we're not tracking or really training enough the rate of force development aspect. So in later stages of rehab, there's been studies showing that athletes may obtain a 90% limb symmetry and strength and hop tests. But if you look at their rate of force development, whether it's with just quad strength or it's using a leg press, those are still lacking quite behind. And it could be one aspect that's contributing to relatively high rates of re-injury So knowing that and kind of getting into that, what are some principles of training to consider in rehab or if strength and conditioning coaches are working with these athletes in later stages of rehab that they should think about implementing to kind of enhance rate of force development as long as their strength is adequate?
2: Uh, Well, there's a number of things, Um, you know, obviously part of the, the uh, rehab process is, you know, stepping off of raised surfaces, Um, something as simple as um, so essentially what we're talking about is eccentric uh, rate of force development and basically the ability to accept a, an external load. And um, we kind of have a a progression of doing that. Um, So at at Carol, what we end up using is bodyweight exercises come first. So we wanna do something as simple as a snap down. So a snap down is a basically going on, some people call them tall to short. So really tall up on the toes coming down um, to kind of catch yourself. Now, something that's beneficial about this is you can catch at different heights Um, it's self-limiting because the faster you snap down, you know, that's how much you have to absorb. So something as simple as that you can do those bilaterally, you can do them unilaterally. Um, but then to kind of take it up a notch is when you start to hop a little bit more or hop continuously. So unilaterally, bilaterally, uh, stepping off a raised surface and a raised surface doesn't have to be much more than about six inches Um, The key with raised surfaces, though, is to make sure that the individual doesn't squat down or let their foot fall below where the box height is. So you actually get the six inches of height Um, because otherwise you're you know, you could be actually dropping from like three inches. Um, So. Going along with that is our ability just to land in general. So when you get to a raised surface, we're talking about, you know, six inches, 12 inches but um, doing it bilaterally first, progressing to unilaterally. um, And then you get to something that's certainly more complex is jumping to a raised surface. So it's going to decrease the amount of force that they experience upon landing, but it's going to challenge the stability component um, when we get there. Another thing that we use is we have um, a flywheel device or a box, And one of the things we like to do with that is we have had some success with some individuals, uh, that had ACLs. Um, for those that listening that aren't uh, familiar with a flywheel device, it is a, some people call it a yo-yo. Um, but essentially what it is is that you are hooked up to a harness and the harness is hooked up to a, a wheel that spins in reverse direction, kind of like a yo-yo. And, um, the harder you push against it the harder it pulls you back into the position that where you started so most common movement people do with these is a squat you can do lunges you can do split squats with them um, now what we do is just so individuals can see kind of how they are how they are producing and absorbing force is we put force plates on them and put the screen in front of them so they can see the asymmetry in terms of their force production. So they're not leaning so far to one side. A benefit to this device is that and I think it's a great rehab tool for, um, for, uh, for individuals coming back from injury is, uh, it's self-limiting. So what you create is what you have to absorb. And so you can start off incredibly slow and individuals who, um, You know, who require a longer period of time. And I I would say, and Brett, I think you would agree with this as well, is that we are very hesitant sometimes to load an individual who's coming back. So, devices like this that have variable resistance based on how hard you push is going to be really unique. So, Um, we've taken individuals from doing a slower squat to a faster squat. And, you know, obviously they're going to have to absorb more of a external force, the faster they perform it. We've also put up a a wedge kind of on the side where they can do lunges into a single leg, um, both sides, so we can work the, the symmetry, um, but uh, yeah, th- those are some of the v- devices that we are, sorry, some of the strategies that we use and, um, you know, whether, you know, we were talking about weightlifting, you can do weightlifting variations. Again, start with pulls where you, you don't necessarily have to jump with it, but being able to control the weight coming back down to a mid thigh power position um, is, you know, it's an angle that's going to be specific to a lot of the sports that they play. So getting them to kind of recover in that position is going to be important.
1: Mm-hmm. We at Kinetic are really fortunate that we have a K-Box to be able to use. And we also have force plates. So we do measure a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, and in looking at the K-Box, like using that is, it's a, a there's a similarity between that and the weightlifting that you mentioned is there's a lot of coaching that will be involved if you focus on intent. So from my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong is we can overload the eccentric portion with the K box either using like an accentuated concentric. So then just using your body weight to control that overloaded eccentric and, or if you kind of wanted to work on like eccentric power or rate of force development, kind of putting on the brakes as fast as you possibly can kind of how you referenced with that snap down versus kind of putting on the brakes, slowly absorbing it over time. Um, are those kind of strategies you think would be usable in coaching an athlete in those later stages if the focus is the rate of force development?
2: Yeah, whether it's an injured athlete coming back or a, or a healthy athlete, something to remember is that we eventually have to progress someone from absorbing force slowly to absorbing rapidly so that they can uh, continue on. So thinking about something like a sprint, a sprint you're on the ground for 90 to hundred milliseconds, depending on who we're talking about. You don't have time to, you know, develop a ton of force, but however you experience about three to five times your body weight on a single leg. So we have to be able to produce a lot of force and produce it rapidly to be successful. Um, so yeah, I, the one comment I'd make about the K box is that the technique that you perform during the, um, the eccentric phase, if you will, so after the push, is going to determine kind of what you experience and what benefits you may get. So this concept of eccentric overload is gonna be relative to how you perform it. So if someone pushes hard and then they drop into their into their squat without kind of riding it down, they're gonna get slapped in the face with force because they, um, they go from nothing to a lot. Um, what is recommended in the, in the, in the research from my understanding is gently resisting the first third and then kind of riding down to the full range of motion I've done on this, someone who's strong and someone who's um, who's weaker. So just for context, one person squatted 2.4 times their body weight and another person did uh, I think it was 1.6 times their body weight. So it's not weak, but weaker. Um, but what you ended up seeing is both didn't actually experience a quote unquote eccentric overload because they were able to expand the uh, the eccentric phase for a longer period of time. Um, however, what you saw with the weaker individual is they received greater benefits uh, from an eccentric rate of force development standpoint than the stronger person. The stronger person is able to kind of you know, dissipate or increase the length of that phase. Um, so stronger people may not benefit as much from the K-Box compared to weaker individuals and um, those who are coming back from injury. You mentioned the eccentric rate of force development. I Like I said, I think the K-Box is a great rehab tool. Um, I just think that we, uh, push it a little bit too much in terms of performance standpoint, but I, I think um, there's certainly more research that needs to be done.
1: Mm-hmm. Very agreed. All these things are just tools that can be used in the toolbox. There's always different options to go about it. Um, kind of my last follow-up with this is some of your research that you do do on is like eccentric overload on top of like weightlifting derivatives. Um, are there any recommendations you have in sort of enhancing eccentric absorption or rate of force development with using other tools, whether it's free weights, body weight, anything like that?
2: Um, first and foremost, get the person strong first. Uh, that's my first recommendation and that's, that's get them strong first with traditional, uh, resistance training, squat, press pull, you know, uh, those are your foundations, but uh, to place more of an eccentric emphasis, you can use things like body weight immediately. So being able to absorb an external force or accept an external force, um, the snap snapdowns, uh, you can have a variety of plyometric variations that are going to give you an eccentric stimulus. So something as simple as a line hop, while appearing basic, you still have to accept an external force. Now, Stepping off boxes and landing is a greater external force due to acceleration of gravity, but also you have to be able to stop your downward momentum. Um, Now, things that start to give you a more unique uh, eccentric benefit would be things like accentuated eccentric loading, which essentially refers to uh, performing the eccentric phase with a greater weight compared to what the concentric phase is being performed with. So examples of this can be a submaximal uh, effort, which would be um, accentuated eccentric jumps. And the way that you do those is two different ways. You can use uh, dumbbells. Lower yourself down with dumbbells, let the dumbbells go at the bottom, and then jump afterwards. Um, you can use weight releasers. And weight releasers, um, generally, you're going to put on a barbell, Um then, and so if you're performing a squat, a bench press, and even a jump, um, you're going to lower down to the point that you have full range of motion or wherever you want to go, they're going to fall off, and then you're able to perform the concentric phase with lighter weight. Um, what I would say is that as someone continues to get stronger, then you can start to incorporate more and more of these things. Um, I'm hesitant to incorporate them with novices for a couple reasons one um, strength base but two their technique um, if you add in variable technique with something like a um, even chains bands um, variable resistance training or with accentuated eccentric loading you're asking for variations in technique that shouldn't be there at the time Um, so solidify the technique, get them strong, and then you can incorporate these later on as a novel training stimulus. So the key is to really get someone relatively speaking strong so that they can start playing with more toys. Really?
1: I think that's very valuable advice because everyone always sees the bright shiny thing and wants to go after that right away. But if you don't have these foundational skills, the benefit you might get out of them is relatively nil. I always say so. I appreciate that. I really agree with that. I think it's great that a lot of physical therapists who are working with athletes and strength coaches really need to consider is a lot of these later stage performance enhancing techniques. There's a lot of coaching that needs to go behind it. It's not just assign X drill and they'll get through it. There's a lot of coaching that needs to be instilled in the athlete to get a benefit. So finishing up here a little bit, So one of the many reasons I became a strength coach initially, and a lot of strength coaches become strength coaches is to help their athletes not make the same mistakes. They probably did themselves as a former athlete. So if you could go back in time to your younger self,
2: knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself? Don't train tens all the time. (laughs) Uh, no, I mean, when I was, when I was in high school, um, a lot of the knowledge that we all had from um, from a a resistance training standpoint was based on um, bodybuilding type methods. So it was get bigger. Um, You know, the concept of getting stronger was thought to just kind of come along with that. And so what I would do in high school um, is I would Uh I would do three sets of 10 of all these exercise variations throughout the week, but I would do that every single week. It didn't, you know, nothing was really planned out in terms of in terms of blocks of what I was doing. It was, well, what did I do last time? I'm gonna try to do more than that this time. Um, you know, I didn't necessarily start squatting until undergrad. So I would have preferred to, you know, start doing that a lot earlier, developing that movement pattern. Um, you know, I think when it, I would, you know, the other thing I would tell myself is don't, don't play contrasting sports. So, I mean, again, we, we highly value, uh, multi-sport athletes. The hard part is, is when you have athletes that are competing in sports that are contradictory to each other. I ran cross country and played baseball. One's a strength power sport. One is a, an endurance-based sport. So, and they also require different body types as well, um, different demands. So that's part of it. I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not saying for anyone listening, don't, you know, specialize early. Don't do that. You know, we want a variety of sports and experiences for our young athletes, but, um, those are a couple of things. I think, uh, you know, I would certainly train differently, you know, phase out the training a little bit more, focus on strength here, focus on, you know, hypertrophy here. So um, yeah, I, I look, I think back at what I did, I was like, God, that was stupid.
1: I think <laughs> if coaches reflect on what they did and think it was all perfect, they want to change a the thing. They either don't quite know what they're doing or they happen to be coached by a really coach, who know, knew what they were doing at the time. But I think a lot of us fall into that. And I think advice Hearing from an expert now who's in the field is really valuable and should really be taken to heart rather than just, oh, it didn't work for him, but it works for me, or it's going to. This is really valuable information. I think people can really benefit from it. So finishing up, we like to do what we call a little bit of a lightning round, just shoot a few questions to, again, let listeners know a little bit more about you. So outside of coaching, research, teaching, um, what's your favorite hobby? What do you like to do on the weekends?
2: Um, being active, regardless of what, whatever it is, um, you know, what I, I still train by myself, but also, um, movies are a big thing for me. It's hard now because, you know, just can't really go anywhere. Um, but Netflix is kind of a, a godsend just because, you know, I can go back and watch movies I've previously seen or watch a lot of things I haven't seen before. So, um, very much entertainment related.
1: Interesting. Perfect. <laughs> So lastly, if you could meet any person dead or alive, who would it be and why?
2: Uh, there's a couple. Um, I know Tom Hanks is one of them. He's probably one of my favorite actors. And uh, Jim Carrey would also be up there as well. Um, but also uh, from an athlete standpoint, I think it would be really interesting to meet um, like Jesse Owens. Um, People like uh, Hank Aaron, I think would be really interesting to meet. Um, You know, a lot of people didn't like him very much. And I hear he wasn't a very uh, good person was Steve Prefontaine. Um, But just uh, you think about the mentality that he had in terms of a killer instinct, I think it'd be really interesting to talk about that. Um, But uh, yeah, those are those are a handful of people I'd like to meet.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Dr. Sokamel, I really appreciate your time today. It's always great to get to learn from experts in the field. And I learned a lot, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners did today, too. So where can listeners learn more about you? Do you have any social medias?
2: Yeah, so Twitter and Instagram, the handle is uh, Dr. T Sokamel. Uh, that's where you find me most of that. And uh, on my Twitter, I, I have a link to my ResearchGate page, which will also have links to a lot of the full texts of the research that we've done as well.
1: Great. Well, we'll get that in the show notes for the listeners who want to get to know a little bit more about Tim and what he's doing. So thanks again and thanks to everyone for listening and we will see you on the next episode.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new that will help you achieve your goals. If you did, we would love for you to head over to Instagram and search M-K-E Sports Podcast. Like, follow, or comment on today's episode. If you have questions, comments, topics, or guest suggestions, reach out through that Instagram account. Your feedback will help us make this podcast as relevant and informative as possible. If you have additional time, we'd appreciate your help in spreading this information. If you could head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review... It will help us spread the word to more athletes in the greater Milwaukee area. Have a great day, and we will see you next time.